Let's pray together. Father, you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you will not always chide, nor will you keep your anger forever. We praise you, Lord, that you don't deal with us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. And we praise you that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your steadfast love toward those who fear you. And as far as the east is from the west, so far do you remove our transgressions from us. And Lord, we are overwhelmed that as a father has compassion for his children, so you have compassion for those who fear you. We pray that you'd teach us what these words mean, and we pray that you would use them to change our hearts, to make us new for the glory of Christ forever. Amen. I could tell you many stories about my own need for forgiveness, but I just want to tell you one to illustrate it. And uh, this is not one of the worst ones. This is, this is a relatively minor one, but still it, it gets at it. We are all deeply and desperately in need of forgiveness. One day the, the kids were out on the trampoline and uh, they always like for me to get on the trampoline. I don't like to be on the trampoline. Um, I'm always afraid for my back or my knee or my ankle or something like this. And, but sometimes I'll get up on the trampoline. This was a few years ago, so it was, it was probably safer at that point. Um, so, so I jump on the trampoline, and um, everybody's bouncing around all over the place. And for whatever reason, Jake, our oldest son, decides to go up underneath the trampoline. And um, I thought that, that I had gauged correctly how high the trampoline was off the ground. And I thought I had gauged correctly, you know, how low the trampoline went when I jumped on it. So I thought, I'll just scare Jake. And so he's crawling underneath the trampoline, and I do one of these big jumps to land hard, and I drive the poor boy into the dirt, you know, scrape his poor forehead, and the next thing I know, he's weeping, and he's got dirt in his mouth, and I just felt horrible. That's a minor illustration of the ways that we have all hurt those that we love most. In fact, I think it's safe to say that the people that we love most, we have the potential to hurt most. And, and me doing that, I mean, there's nothing more precious to me than my children. So it was, it was a betrayal of what mattered most to me. I felt deep shame. I loathed myself. There was remorse. Can you imagine a situation like that and having nowhere to go for forgiveness? Can you imagine? I trust you can. You can feel what it's like to feel all that remorse and grief and shame and hatred of yourself, and, and you don't know where or how to get to the point where you are forgiven. 
This psalm is speaking to someone who knows forgiveness. Uh, David is, is speaking in this psalm as a man who understands God's forgiveness. And the power of God's forgiveness, the, the, the ability to know God will forgive me, even though I've hurt those deepest, those pre most precious to me. The ability to know that also makes you able to say, I was wrong. Please forgive me. I am so sorry. We, we need this. All of, our, all of our relationships desperately need the oil of forgiveness in the gears of, of, of our interactions with one another. We desperately need the message of Psalm 103. What we're going to see here in Psalm 103 is David first speaks in the first person singular in verses 1 through 5. Uh, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. And then he's going to ta start talking to his soul with these you statements. And then in verses 6 through 14, he's going to broaden it out from the first person singular, me, my, I, to the first person plural, we, our. And then he's going to circle back to an individual in, in verses 15 through 18. And then he's going to contemplate the Lord in verses 19 through 22. And, and before we dive into this, uh, before we see the way that, that David is, is blessing the Lord, commanding his own soul, really, to bless the Lord. Before we, we dive into it, let me just say a word about where this psalm sits in, in this group of psalms, in this section of the Psalter. So if you've been here, you know that when we looked at Psalm 89, when we get to Psalm 89, verse 38, the Lord's anointed king has been rejected. And then in verse 39, his crown lies in the dust. And, and there are many who think, and I'm among them, that Psalm 89 is commemorating the destruction of Jerusalem, the end of the uh, Davidic kingship in Jerusalem. And, and it's thereby commemorating the exile of the people of, of Israel from the land. And at that point, at that point, the covenant with David is in jeopardy. When Israel has disobeyed and gotten themselves exiled, I think it's a valid question. Are we going to have a Davidic king again? Is the Lord going to continue with us the way that he has been interacting with us? And, and that makes... Psalm 90 relevant because Israel had been at that point before. Remember the event at Mount Sinai, they make the golden calf and the Lord says to Moses, he says, get out of my way. I'm going to destroy those people and start over with you, which, which kind of says the Mosaic covenant is over. I'm going to destroy them and we're going to start anew with you. And Moses intercedes with the Lord and, and the Lord relents from that burning anger. So Psalm 90, we've got this prayer of Moses and in verse 13 of Psalm 90, Moses is praying the same things that he prayed back there at that golden calf episode back in Exodus 32, verses 12 through 14. So uh, threat to the Davidic covenant, Mosaic intercession. And then you've got this series of Psalms that celebrate God's power and God's reign. And eventually you get to Psalm 101, and it's the first Psalm of David in, in all of book four. And, and it's, it's as though after we've worked through the Mosaic intercession and the affirmation that God reigns, when these Davidic Psalms start showing up, up again, it's a reaffirmation of God's promises to David. And then, and then it's a reality also that at the end of book three of the Psalter, Psalm 72, concludes with the words, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, 
are ended. And then at that point, you know, you have these superscriptions in the Psalms. After the end of book two, after that, that statement, you never again find a superscription that locates a psalm in a at a particular point in David's life. You get Davidic psalms, but they're kind of like in the abstract. And, and scholars suggest, and I agree with this, that um, these psalms after, uh, after the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in Psalm 89, once you start encountering psalms of David after that, we're looking for the future David. We're not talking about the historical David anymore that we were dealing with in, in Psalms 1 through 72. Now we're looking for the future king from David's line. And in Psalm 101, the future king from David li David's line is making the kinds of commitments that would enable him to be the man who's going to ascend the, the mount of the hill of the Lord. Remember Psalm 15 and Psalm 24? Who shall ascend the mount of the hill of the Lord? And then there, these answers are given. Uh, this, this guy that's got clean hands and, and a blameless heart. In Psalm 101, the psalmist is committing himself to things. The, the David is committing himself to things that are going to enable him to do that. And then Psalm 102 is this prayer for verse 13, the appointed time for, for God's favor. It's written in verse 18, for a generation to come. So the, this, this future-oriented perspective. And then we have Psalm 103. And this psalm, Psalm 103, is going to interact in particular with Exodus 34, 6, and 7, which we uh, had as our call to worship this morning. It's also going to interact in significant ways with Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39. And uh, if you're familiar with the end of the book of Deuteronomy, you know that at that point, what Moses is saying to Israel is, you're going to go into the land. They're, they're on the plains of Moab. They're about to cross the Jordan River. And Moses is saying to Israel, you're going to go into that land. You're going to break this covenant that I've made with you, and I'm going to drive you into exile. And when they get driven into exile, the land of promise, the land of Jerusalem, is the land of life. So when they get exiled, they're going to be leaving the land of life, and they're going to inhabit the unclean realm of the dead. So in a sense, what the Lord is saying to them is, I'm going to kill you as a nation. And then he says this in Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. So it's like the Lord is saying to them, he's saying, you're going to break the covenant and I'm going to kill you, but I'm going to raise you from the dead. And that's exactly what the prophet Ezekiel sees in Ezekiel 37, right? He sees the valley of dry bones and the Lord says to him, son of man, can these bones live? And then the Lord says to him, prophesy to the wind and the spirit comes blowing over those bones and they rise and live. So with, with Deuteronomy 32, 39 in mind, and with uh, Exodus 34, 6, and 7 in mind, and, and with sort of the history of Israel in mind, let's think about the way that David, in Psalm 103, writing perhaps from the perspective of the future king, is commanding his own soul to bless the Lord. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord. Now let's just stop on this word, bless. We don't, we don't typically talk this way. Um, we don't, 
Sometimes, some, if, you, if, if, you, if you're around people that use Bible language, they'll talk this way. They'll say, we bless you, O Lord. And sometimes people get confused because they're like, wait a minute, I thought the greater was supposed to bless the lesser. How are you going to bless the Lord? You're not greater than he. Well, that's not what's going on here. The word bless here, it's, it's built off a verb that actually means to kneel. And so when it's used this way, it's like what David is commanding himself to do is to adore the Lord on bended knee. So it's like he's commanding himself to bow before the Lord and, and, and bless the Lord in that sense. Not pronounce a blessing over him, but bless him by bowing before him to adore him. So he's commanding his soul, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. He's going to tell us why he feels this way. But what he's saying is everything, every part of me, all that's inside me, every aspect of who I am now needs to adore God on bended knee. Bless his holy name. Now, this is the first indication that we're dealing with Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Because what, it, what happened in that, on that occasion is the Lord's, or Moses said to the Lord in Exodus 33, he said, show me your glory. And the Lord said, okay, I'm going to cause all my goodness to pass before you, and I'm going to proclaim my name before you. So glory, goodness, and name, those are all uh, related to one another. And David is blessing God's holy name. And we're going to get into Exodus 34, 6, and 7 as we continue. Then he says in verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul. And the repetition always adds emphasis to these statements. And now he's going to start telling us why he feels this way. Why he is commanding his soul and everything in him to bless God. He says there at the end of verse 2, forget not all his benefits. You could put this another way. David is saying, soul Remember everything that God has done for you. And look at the first thing he says in verse 3. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who forgives all your iniquity. Um, some of our children have more tender consciences than others. And um, one, of, one of our kids in particular, I'm not going to out him here in this context, but uh, one of our kids um, was, was sort of in a habit of coming to us at the end of the day and, and confessing his sin. And it, it, was, it was beautiful how um, sincere and how earnest he was and how much he wanted to be forgiven. And, and one night he had come to us and he had, he had apologized and he had confessed his sin and, and we had said, you know, affirmed his tender conscience and, and assured him that the Lord would forgive everybody that repents of their sin and turns to him and trusts in Christ. And, and he left the room and then he came back in the room and he was still crying. And he said, will you forgive me of all my sin? Look at what David says here. Who forgives all your iniquity, all of it. Do you know what this feels like? Have you experienced this? This, this psalm is going to expound on and develop this idea of God's forgiveness. And my prayer for everybody in this room and for anybody that ever listens to this message is that you will experience God's forgiveness. 
David is blessing the Lord who forgives all your iniquity. And then he continues the next statement there in verse 3, who heals. Remember Deuteronomy 32, 39? I am the Lord. I am he. I am the one who kills and makes alive. I wound and I heal. That's the relationship that's going on here. Sin results in death. And, and the march toward death in our human experience is a march of decay and disease and deterioration. And David is saying, God forgives iniquity and God heals those diseases. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that your cancer is going to get taken away or whatever it is that you're suffering with is going to end. It does mean that if you're somebody who's experienced God's forgiveness, you're going to be raised from the dead. You're going to be one whom God wounded and he's going to heal you. You're going to be one whom he kills and he's going to make you alive. So there's a profound hope and a deeply rooted biblical reality that, that, that informs the words that David is saying here to his own soul. And then that, this idea that I've just articulated continues in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Who redeems your life from the pit. David is talking to his soul, remember, and he's saying that this God whom he is calling his soul to bless is the one who redeems your life from the pit. This word for pit is parallel with Sheol back in Psalm 16. He's talking about death. God redeems us from death. And, and, I, and this is all colored with resurrection hope as, as David talks about this. These benefits that he's enumerating. Forgiveness, healing, redemption. And then look at the next one in verse 4. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. What David is saying is that when the iniquity is forgiven, when the diseases are healed, when the body rises up new from the grave, the adorning crown, you might consider it a chieftain's headdress, the symbol of beauty and authority, the crown, right? The, the thing that people look at and say, that is beautiful. The thing that God is going to put on you that does all that is his own steadfast love and mercy. God's own steadfast love and mercy is going to adorn his people who have been raised from the dead. And then uh, that, these words, steadfast love and mercy, the Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. He's anticipating, he's moving toward the quotation in verse 8 of Exodus 34, 6. But he continues in verse 5, who satisfies you with good. And again, remember, um, show me your glory. I will cause all my goodness to pass before you and will proclaim my name before you. And David is saying, that what God satisfies his resurrected people with is his own goodness. So that, verse 5, your youth is renewed like the eagles. I think there are two things at work here. Uh, eagles, they, they molt their feathers. I learned this as I was studying this passage. What that means is they shed their old, their old feathers 
And then new feathers grow in under, under those that have been shed. So there's this constant renewal in, in an eagle of, of, his, of his layers of, of feathers. But then there's, there are also these biblical connections with eagles. You remember in Exodus chapter 19, when, when the Lord has brought Israel out of Egypt and he gets them to Mount Sinai, and he says to them in verse 4, you have seen how I have borne you on the wings of eagles and brought you to myself. And then building off of that statement, as Isaiah prophesies about a new work of salvation that God is going to do for his people and a new covenant to replace the Exodus and the old covenant, Isaiah 40, 31 talks about how those who hope in the Lord are going to mount up with wings of, of an eagle. They're, they're going to run and not grow weary. And, and David, I think, is talking about these same things. Your youth is renewed like the eagles. I'm sure you've been around elderly, believing people who, because they're, they're right with God and the world, they have this emotional stability and this deep-seated joy, and they seem young. They don't seem old and tired. They seem joyful and glad-hearted. And, and even if their body is aging, awaiting the resurrection, their youth is being renewed like the eagles. Uh, so, so David has, um, has commanded his soul to bless the Lord on an individual, personal level in verses 1 through 5. Now he's going he's to broaden this out. And he's still going to interact with, with Exodus 34, 6, and 7 in particular. But, but at this point, he's going to start applying this to the history of Israel and to Israel's future. So he says in verse 6, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Now, um, in, in a as we continue this morning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start talking about definitions of oppression um, it, that, that people are, are throwing around in our society. And I'm going to make reference to these, um, a couple of articles written by um, a, a student at Harvard for the Harvard Crimson, who's talking about various forms of oppression. She refers to the way that able-bodied people uh, oppress disabled people. She refers to the way that... Um, um, males oppress females the way that uh, white people oppress black people. And, and, I mean, she just multiplies the categories. The way that straight people oppress gay people. Um, she doesn't offer any supernatural hope to the oppressed. Look at what the Bible says here. The Bible says that the Lord works righteousness. Now, in my opinion, her, her definitions of oppression and her categories of who gets oppressed and how, I don't think those line up with the Bible's categories. But the Bible is giving hope for righteousness and justice to be achieved for all who are oppressed. And what I would submit to you is that the, the hope for the oppressed that the Bible has is better than anything that you'll find on offer from, from secular theorists today. In fact, um, a couple of weeks ago, I referenced this um, essay on intersectionality. It's not an essay. It's an article by this guy, Andrew Sullivan, who is not a conservative. And he, he's, he was asking this question, is intersectionality a religion? 
And, and at one point he says, this is not a Christian, he's not a conservative, and he's talking about these, uh, these theories of, of oppression and, and how people interact. And he says at one point in this article, the only thing this religion lacks, intersectionality, of course, is salvation. It offers no salvation. He says life is simply an interlocking drama of oppression and power and resistance ending only in death. There's no hope there. But look at these words of verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. If you feel oppressed, you should entrust yourself to the Lord. If you feel oppressed, you should look to the Lord to deliver you, to work righteousness and justice. Then he says in verse 7, now in this context, who, who are the oppressed that might be in view? What story is David engaging? Well, he's engaging the exodus from Egypt, isn't he? Where, where the Israelites were oppressed by the Egyptians, they were enslaved, and God worked righteousness and justice. He, he delivered them from slavery. Then look at verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses. I think David is specifically talking about uh, Moses saying, show me your glory. And it's like the Lord says, all right, Moses, this is who I am. This is how I relate to the world. I'm a God who's merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truth, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So the Lord made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. What does that look like? Well, he liberated them, right? And then he laid out the terms of the relationship. And then when they transgressed and broke the terms and incurred his justice... He showed them that he by no means clears the guilty. He drove them into exile. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel, and in all of it, Exodus 34, 6 is the main truth. And that's what David now quotes here in verse 8. I think this passage, verses 8 through 14, is like the pinnacle of the Bible's reflection on God's mercy and love and forgiveness. I don't think it gets any better than the words that are here. So, so, you know, this is another one of those passages in the Bible that I just feel utterly inadequate to preach. I'm tempted to just read it and let it go, but I'm not going to do that. This is glorious. David quotes Exodus 34, 6, the Lord is merciful and gracious. This doesn't exhaust it, but you could say about mercy that it's God not giving you what you deserve. That's one thing you could say about it. Gracious, you could say about that, that's God giving you what you don't deserve. There's a lot more you could say about it. But the Lord is, I mean, you could add about merciful that that's a term that, that has, a, it has a root that's related to a mother's womb. So you're talking about motherly compassion that characterizes God here. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Uh, literally, the, the expression that the Hebrews use to communicate this is long of nose. You know, and you can imagine, you can imagine sn- smoke rising up in somebody's nose until they just become uh, 
so vexed by it that they've got to do something about it. And, and what the text is saying is that God is long of nose. He is slow to anger. It takes a long time to vex him. And abounding in steadfast love. The Lord abounds in, there are all these different ways that people try to communicate this. Loving kindness, covenant loyalty, steadfast love. You could go on and on with attempts to get at this. The Lord abounds in His loyal commitment to be loving and kind and steadfast to His people. And because, because of these realities in verse 8, verse 9 says, He will not always chide. Uh, another, another way to, to render this, you could say, not to the end will he contend. You know what the chiding or the contending is? This is probably what my, I, well, I know. This is what my kids feel like I, I do too much to them, you know? Don't sweep the floor that way, sweep it this way. Uh, don't fold the clothes that way, fold them this way. There's this ongoing chiding and correction and trying to get it right and, 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 and disciplining. He will not always chide. Nor will he keep his anger forever. That anger in particular is the anger that got them driven into exile. And, and at this point in the Psalter, it's like David is saying, the exile is not going to last forever. God is going to bring us back. God is going to bring about the ultimate salvation. And, and that prophesied uh, new work of salvation at the Exodus and, and return from exile is ultimately going to be fulfilled in the death of Jesus on the cross and the bringing of God's people into the new heavens and new earth. So you can translate this and you can say, I mean, not translate, but interpret it. God is not always going to bring disciplinary judgment into the lives of his people. He's not always forever going to contend with them. There will come a day when the healing is going to start. There will come a day when the resurrection is going to happen and we're going to enter into the new heavens and new earth. And then verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins. We could go back to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 32, and, and we could read about how, I'm not going to take us there, I'm just going to tell you about it. The Lord says at one point, he says, I would have said, I will wipe them from human memory. I will utterly destroy them. That's what, that's what Israel deserved. That's what Adam deserved. In the day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And he doesn't deal with Adam according to his sins, does he? He doesn't deal with Israel according to their sins, does he? And any one of us that's honest with ourselves, we know what we deserve. I mean, I, I hope you understand that fairness would be for all of us to have been in hell long ago. Fairness, justice, what we deserve would, been, would have been for long ago for us to experience the full measure of God's wrath. But he doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Um, I can't help but think of, of a pastor that Denny and I have listened to a lot. Maybe others in this room have as well. He used to say, if you knew everything about me that God knows about you, about me, uh, you wouldn't be here listening to me preach. But if we knew everything about you that God knows about you, we wouldn't let you in the doors. I mean, that's where we are, right? We are sinners. 
And God doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And then in verse 11, David uses this, this beautiful uh, comparison. Uh, David, it, it's like he's reaching for language to capture the enormity of God's love for his people. And he says here, for as high as the heavens are above the earth. And you can, in the ancient world, you know, he doesn't have the Hubble telescope, right? In the ancient world, he sees an ocean of space above him. He sees what looks like an unbounded heaven that stretches on seemingly forever. And it's as though he says, there's nothing better for me to compare God's love to. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. This capacious sky, which seems to extend forever, this ocean of air that goes on forever over the solid rock of, that, of this spinning globe. This is how God's love is toward those who, what does it mean to fear him? Who respect him, who keep an appropriate distance from him, who fear the wrath that falls on, who, on those who transgress his commands, and who respond with honor and duty and hopeful anticipation to this living sovereign. That's what it is to fear God. God loves his people, and God's love for his people can neither be measured nor contained. It can't be circumscribed, as in you can't put boundaries around it, and you can't terminate it. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And then David just continues in this vein with these comparisons. Verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. This speaks to the cancellation of guilt with its penalty. The, the reason this is communicated, the cancellation of guilt and penalty, the, the, the merciful relenting from wrath, the refusal to remember wrong and continue to contend. It flows from this limitless love that was described there in verse 11. The love in verse 11 that's as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's the love that, that results in this absolute forgiveness. The place of sunrise will always be as far as the eye can see from the place of sunset. Those two points will never converge. They'll never meet. East will never become west, nor west east. Therefore, the transgressions of God's people are gone, never to be brought back. Those who fear God, those who have turned from sin and trusted in God, their sins will never again provoke God's wrath. Never again incur consequences. Never again should they torment our conscience. Because they will never again disrupt the relationship. The transgressions have been removed. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Notice who's doing this. It's not the people doing this. 
We don't remove our own sin. We don't, we don't satisfy God's wrath against it. We don't somehow do enough penance to have it done away with. We don't say a set number of prayers. We don't run enough beads over. No, we do nothing to achieve this forgiveness. God removes these transgressions. And the reason he does this is in verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children. Why does a father feel compassion for his children? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? There's this, this, this love that you feel for your own children that's grounded in the fact that you've sacrificed so much for these little ones, that, that your, your um, heritage is invested in their lives, and you know how weak they are. You, you know what they've been through. You know what they can't handle. And so you indulge their weakness and frailty. And what this text is saying is, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. And the word for frame there is, is a word that's used in Genesis 2-7 uh, when, when it describes the Lord forming man from the dust. He knows our frame. He remembers, and I'm going to render the last line of verse 14, he remembers that dust are we. And it's worded that way to invoke or to evoke Genesis 3.19. Dust are you, and to dust you shall return. So God knows our frailty, and he knows our fault. He knows how we were created, how, we're, how we were composed and constituted. And these things prompt him to feel for those who fear him, Notice again there at the end of verse 13. To those who fear him, he feels the way a father feels for his children. We're talking here about a mercy that has not been merited. It has not been earned. We're talking about a love that cannot be measured. A forgiveness that's complete. A father who knows our form, who will never forsake us. These indeed are reasons to bless the Lord. David is still enumerating the benefits that the Lord has shown to his people. And after this summit of reflection on God's mercy and love and forgiveness, there in verses 6 through 14, David now turns to the brevity of man. And he's going to compare the, the shortness of our lives with the everlasting character of God's love. Look at verses 15 and 16. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. So the new growth of the spring is mown down in the autumn. And it's just a bare field in the winter. And that's how our lives are. You can imagine a flower blossoming. And that's not going to last very long, is it? That's how our, 4, verse 16, the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. This place doesn't remember the people who were here before us. Once living memory is gone, the place remembers it no more. Unless historians consciously make an effort to remember days gone by, they're over and forgotten. But look at verse 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. 
You know what that means? From everlasting in one direction, eternity past, to everlasting in the other direction, eternity future. It's never going to stop. As short as our lives are, God's love for those who fear him is everlasting. And if you say to me, well, how do I know if I'm one who fears the Lord? My response is, you've got the, the opportunity right now. You can, you can recognize the holiness of this God, the righteousness of this judge, and, and you can begin to fear what's coming. Death is coming. Death is coming. And every one of us in this room needs to make the calculation that this guy, Raleigh Williams III, who plays football, or used to play football now, for the Arkansas Razorbacks recently made. This is a guy that in his freshman year, um, he, he, things were going great, and then there was a profound hit, and, and it, it injured his neck, and when he landed on the ground, he could feel nothing from the neck down. And, and, and slowly, feeling came back into his body, and he got full use of his body back, and they fused a couple of vertebrae in his neck, and after sitting out a season, last season, he went out and led the SEC in rushing during the regular season. But this spring, the Razorbacks were practicing. And, uh, I mean, leading rusher in the SEC, right? This is a guy that's going to make millions in the NFL. Uh, but he, he takes the ball. He incurs a normal hit. And when he lands on the ground, he can't feel his arms. He can feel the rest of his body, but he can't feel his arms. And, and slowly, gradually, it comes back. And he made a wise decision. His, his parents, his sister happened to be at the game, or at this, at this spring practice when this happened. And he said, when I saw their faces, I knew I could not do that to them again. And he said, I want to be able to walk. And a man who was going to make millions in the NFL, a man who next fall, if he had continued, would hear hundreds of thousands of people screaming and cheering him. And, and all the rush of playing college football in the SEC he said, I'm done. And he walked away. He chose long-term health. And, and he, he talks about God in various ways. I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but he made a wise choice. He chose long-term health over short-term glory. That's the choice you make when you deny sin and you say, I want to live forever. You can be somebody that fears God. Turn to him. Turn away from all the stuff he's going to judge you for. Turn away from a shattered neck and embrace life. The Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. His steadfast love, verse 17, is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. I think that reference to children's children, it's like, it's like we've, we've been up in this abstract from everlasting to everlasting. And then he comes down and he says from one generation to the next, in the day to day, God's steadfast love and God's righteousness is applied all the way through. Verse 18, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. These are not people that earn God's salvation by keeping the covenant. No, God saves people, then he makes a covenant with them right? Jesus dies and thereby inaugurates the new covenant, just like the, the Passover lambs died, and then God made the covenant with his people. These are people who, who keep the covenant and remember to do his commandments because they've been redeemed. And after all this reflection, 
the first person singulars in verses 1 through 5, the first person plurals, the we statements in verses 6 through 14, and then the reflection on the brevity of man in verses 15 through 18. Now David says in verse 18, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. It's like he's saying there is no other. He's the one who reigns in the heavens above and in the earth beneath. His kingdom rules over all, and rightly so. I, I referenced these, these uh, articles that, that I, was, I was talking about a few moments ago. Uh, what, these, what these people are trying to offer is an alternative narrative of right and wrong. They're trying to offer an alternative narrative about the healing of humanity, about the fixing of our problems. And it involve, it's, it's, they're trying to remove oppression to make everybody's life, life better. And their story is not as good as the one in the Bible. Their, their standards are not righteous like the standards in the Bible. I'd love to go on about that, but I'm not going to. I'm out of time. What a God. What a God is being described here in the Bible. What a passage. It's no wonder, is it, that David would now summon the, the hosts of heavens, the host of the heavens in verses 20 through 22. He says there in verse 20, Bless the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. The angels, the mighty ones, the ministers, all these titles, they increase the gravity and the significance of these people that are being called upon to adore the Lord on bended knee with David. And that just increases the glory of the Lord. Bless the Lord, verse 22, all his works, everything that he's made in all places of his dominion, which is everywhere. Everything should break out in spontaneous praise to God. And then David ends in verse 22 where he began. Bless the Lord, O my soul. If, if you've experienced God's forgiveness that David is blessing God for in this psalm, it will change your life. It will make you somebody who is willing, who's willing to take responsibility for the things that you've done wrong. Because you know a place where forgiveness can be found. You know that you can be forgiven. And it will also make you somebody who's able to forgive others who have wronged you. Because you know how you've been forgiven. I'm, I'm listening to this book by this guy named Paul Kalanithi called When Breath Becomes Air. This guy was a, uh, from the, um, this guy was a phenomenal physician. And um, he was 36. He had achieved all his dreams. He had earned the respect of his, his superiors. He had won prestigious national awards. He was fielding job offer, offers to be a research physician from major universities. Um, he was at Stanford, and his program director had sat him down and said, um, he, says he says, I'm going to quote, Paul, I think you'll be the number one candidate for any job you apply for. Just an FYI, we'll be starting a faculty search for someone like you here. No promises, of course, but it's something you, you should consider. So in other words, they're saying, hey, we'd like to hire you. This is a guy who is just a phenomenal doctor, and then he gets cancer. And... Um, he knows almost as soon as he realizes that he has cancer that he's going to die. And so in his dying, he wrote this book, When Breath Becomes Air, right? It's no longer breath. 
because the one breathing it is dead. And, and he's, he's recounting um, in his story about his days uh, in his second year of, of uh, training in, in residency, and, and this is what he writes. The schedule took a toll. As residents, we were working as much as 100 hours a week. Though regulations officially capped our hours at 88, there was always more work to be done. My eyes watered, my head throbbed. I downed energy drinks at 2 a.m. At work, I could keep it together, but as soon as I walked out of the hospital, the exhaustion would hit me. I staggered through the parking lot, often napping in my car before driving the 15 minutes home to bed. Not all residents could stand the pressure. One was simply unable to accept blame or responsibility. And I'm just going to insert here, this guy doesn't know forgiveness. And so he can't take blame or responsibility. Kalanithi, Kalanithi continues, he was a talented surgeon, but he could not admit when he'd made a mistake. I sat with him one day in the lounge as he begged me to help him save his career. All you have to do, I said, is look me in the eye and say, I'm sorry. What happened was my fault, and I won't let it happen again. But it was the nurse who, no, you have to be able to say it and mean it. Try again. But no, say it. This went on for an hour before I knew he was doomed. If you don't experience God's forgiveness, if you're not able to take responsibility for, for the, the sins that you've committed, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. You're doomed. In a much bigger way than this doctor who's going to lose his career. You're doomed. But if you can fear the Lord, if you can turn from your sin, you will find his steadfast love to be as high as the heavens are above the earth, and you will know the astonishing cleansing of him removing your transgressions as far as the east from the west, and you will know a God who relates to you as a father who has compassion on his children. Lord, we praise you for the way that you've created the world. We praise you for the way that you have made man male and female. We praise you for the way that you have instituted and revealed, mercifully, graciously, lovingly revealed what is right and what is wrong. And Lord, we praise you for the Lord Jesus who came and who satisfied your justice and who made it so that anyone who turns from sin can be a child of God through faith in Christ. Lord, we thank you for Psalm 103. We praise you for David's poetic gifts. We pray that these words would be precious to us. We pray that you would write them on the tablets of our hearts and make them the truths that come out of us in our times of need. We love you. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.